three episodes in three weeks. We're really on a roll at the moment on a journey through Stock Aitken Waterman. I'm Gavin Scott from pop music website chartbeats.com.au and along for the ride, as always, is Matthew Demby. Matt, this episode is going to serve as a bit of a palate cleanser, isn't it? It sure is. After a rather divisive track in the last episode, what a thrill to come back with one of Saw's best ever pop records. This track is straight down the line a belter. Not only is it an amazing song and a fantastic production, but it also features an extraordinary vocalist, and that's a very welcome combination. Yes, as much fun as it's been to talk about novelty records and one-hit wonders the last couple of episodes, it's time for some seriously good stock Aitken Waterman material. The trio had teamed up with some music veterans in the past, artists like Debbie Harry, The Three Degrees, Precious Wilson, Edwin Starr and Gloria Gaynor, but those projects had all been limited, both in terms of how many songs were actually produced and the success of the singles that were ultimately released. This time it was different. Yeah, this was no brief tantalising dalliance. We're talking about a single that led to a full album of killer material, and it would end up being one of the defining projects of Saw's entire career. Yes, after spending several years struggling to find direction, superstar Donna Summer was back in contention thanks to Saw. This track is the first fruit of their collaboration. It's This Time I Know It's For Real, which charted in February of 1989. Let's have a listen. Before we get stuck into Donna's 1989 collaboration with Stockake and Waterman, let's turn back the clock 15 years to 1974 when her partnership with another songwriting and production team began. That was the year she started working with On The Rise songwriters and producers Giorgio Moroder and Pete Bellotti, who she'd met while living in Munich and doing background vocal sessions. It was also the year of her first release as Donna Summer. She'd put out a few singles before that under her maiden name, Donna Games. Their first track together, called Denver Dream, was only released in a couple of European countries and pretty much sank without a trace. It was followed by a couple of singles that had some limited regional success in Europe. In 1975, however, everything changed for Donna, Giorgio and Pete. Donna said she first agreed to record the erotically charged Love to Love You Baby as a demo to be shopped to other artists because she was uncomfortable with the idea of having her own name on it. Let's hear from the late great Donna recalling the story of that song via her 1989 press kit. When I did that song, I did it as a spoof on Marilyn Monroe. I mean, really, that's where my head was at. And I just said, well, how would Marilyn Monroe sing this song? And then I just did it as a spoof in my mind. I wasn't being serious. And then they banned it in England when it came out, and that just made it sell more. And, and uh, it was all new to me. I, I never thought that record would do anything. I really, I did it as a demo for someone else to do. And I said, we were looking for someone to sing the song, and they had taken my song down to, I think, Meet Him, which is a publisher's convention. And a couple of people took that song to other countries, and they put it on the radio in that form. And it was really released before I even had records. So, I, I mean, it wasn't, <laughs> I had no control over what happened. So the song caught the attention of US disco label Casablanca Records, who suggested radically extending the track. That inspired an era-defining 16-minute version peppered with orgasmic moaning. That record would launch self-described church girl Donna to international stardom, whether she liked it or not. Let's have a listen. (laughs) 
Love to Love You Baby was the first of a run of massive hits throughout the rest of the 70s for Donna, mostly in conjunction with Giorgio and Pete. I mean, take a listen to this catalogue of classics that defined the disco era. I'd maybe pick Hot Stuff as my favourite, although that Donna and Barbara duet is particularly epic. And incidentally, No More Tears, Enough Is Enough was also the first song Stock and Aitken covered when they reunited in 1994, with Kim Mazzell and Jocelyn Brown on vocals. We'll get to that, I don't know, in a couple of years. Matt, if you had to name a disco Donna track as your favourite, what would it be? There's no doubt about it. I Feel Love from 1977. It's a genuinely revolutionary record with that stark bubbling sound that erupted out of the Moog synthesizer. A lot of people from the time say they'd never heard anything like it. I'm so grateful for this record because it literally spawned almost everything in 80s music that I loved and adored. It really was ground zero for modern dance music, wasn't it? More electronic than other disco tunes, it was a step along the path towards synth pop, house, techno, and importantly for Saw, high energy. Without I Feel Love, would there even be Stock Aiken Waterman? Also, The Human League, Blondie, Eurythmics, Bronsky Beat, Sylvester, they were all influenced by I Feel Love. As it turns out, Moroda and Bellotti didn't realise what they had on their hands and didn't think it would be a single. It was Casablanca boss Neil Bogart who realised its potential. Bellotti told Pitchfork, Quote, it didn't mean anything to us in terms of us thinking we'd done anything special. Can you believe that? Yeah, well, thank God someone noticed how great this record was. The impact of Donna's disco era on present day music should not be underestimated. People are still trying to sound like this record today. There are countless ripoffs and clones and homages all these decades later, but it's really never been bettered. It's just been built on endlessly. Now, as we all know, the disco era came to an abrupt end as the 70s came to a close and the Disco Sucks movement went into overdrive, although there were some straggling disco hits into the 80s, especially in Australia, where we were typically about 6 to 12 months behind the times. The massive backlash against disco took its toll on some artists, like the Bee Gees, who had to take a backseat for quite a few years. I mean, you know, they were very successful in that backseat, working as songwriters and producers for hire, and they did that when it became apparent they weren't going to have any hits in their own right for a while. But how did Donna weather the storm? Yeah, disco might have been forced off stage by a bunch of angry rock boys, but Donna was still one of the biggest stars in the world. By 1980, she wandered out of her Casablanca Records deal, and just at the right time, along came music mogul David Geffen with an offer she couldn't refuse. He was starting his own label, Geffen Records, and he wanted her as his very first signing. His next two acts were Elton John and John Lennon. That was the company that Donna was in. 
For her first album with Geffen, The Wanderer, Donna, Maroda and Bellotti changed her sound to a mix of new wave, rock and gospel with some pretty solid chart results. But when it came time for her follow-up album, David Geffen was unhappy with what he heard and pulled the plug halfway through, removing Donna's production team and putting her with Quincy Jones. That was the beginning of the end of her superstar run on the charts, although her next single, Love Is In Control, sold well. Let's have a listen to The Wanderer and then Love Is In Control. I know I'm ready now, it's just a little time, cause I'm Probably a good move to shift styles rather than cling onto the Titanic that was disco. The title track of The Wanderer reached the top 10 here and in the US, but I can't help but wonder whether that was because people genuinely loved the song and the new sound, or because Donna was so massive that anything was going to do well. Personally, I wasn't a fan of the song and that almost spoken word vocal in it. But I did like Love Is In Control, Finger On The Trigger, which reached number 10 in the US and the top 20 in Australia and the UK. As much as it was a shocking move to separate Donna from her creative team, if you were going to pair her with anyone else, Quincy Jones would have been top of the list. Yeah, you'll meet people who quite like this Gaffin material, but very few people will make the claim that these songs are towering classics of the stature of Donna's earlier material. When a star gets as huge as Donna was by 1980, anything new they release is going to do fairly solidly for a while, just by riding on the huge momentum of what they did before. But that doesn't last forever, and a few years into the 80s, Donna found herself floundering. It didn't help her spirits or her creativity that she'd been separated from Moroda. She told The Advocate in 1989, The record company wanted me to make different kinds of songs and records. They didn't think the old way was working. They thought my time with Giorgio had run out. Giorgio was my mentor, my guide. He was like my father in the business. All of a sudden, they were taking away everything that was true and dear to me and putting me with people I didn't know. Although Donna was still scoring hits, it wasn't the same type of success as her 70s heydays and all those US number ones. As it would turn out, her biggest hit of the 80s in the US and in Australia came from an album that had nothing to do with Geffen. Instead, the title track of 1983's She Works Hard for the Money was from an album that put an end to her ongoing legal dispute with former label Casablanca and that label's parent company Polygram Records. Released on another Polygram label, Mercury, and produced by Michael Omartian, who was best known for his work with yacht rock hero Christopher Cross, She Works Hard for the Money reached number three in the US and number four in Australia. It was a more modest success in the UK, peaking at number 25. Let's take a listen. That classic track was considered a major return to form for Donna, but any resurgence in the mid-80s was overshadowed by a very ugly controversy. It was claimed that Donna, who by this stage was once again deeply religious, had allegedly made some disturbing comments about homosexuality and AIDS during a 1983 concert. 
She denied the words that were attributed to her and eventually reached out to the gay community over what she called a terrible misunderstanding, saying, if I've caused you pain, please forgive me. By the end of the decade, she launched legal action against one publication that printed the allegations against her as fact. Do you remember that, Gavin? I was probably too young to be aware of the furore at the time, but it was definitely something I heard about in later years. And as you've indicated, it was a rumour that would haunt Donna for some time. Did that controversy also impact her next two albums back at Geffen, Cats Without Claws and All Systems Go? Neither yielded a big American hit, but the latter did land a single in the UK top 20. Donna was with Warners in the UK and they did what Geffen couldn't do with the single Dinner with Gershwin. They made it a hit. And it's a pretty good one too. Mature and clever, but still commercial. Let's have a listen. The failure of the song in the US only created more tension between Donna and Geffen. She told Billboard in 1989 of her problems with the label, quote, It was not a match made in heaven. I noticed that aside from their work with the hard rock category, they didn't really have much success in other areas. It seemed that no matter what I did musically, they couldn't get behind what I was doing even Dinner with Gershwin. Which brings us up to 1988 and Donna Summer's union with Stock Aitken Waterman. Earlier in this series, we've heard countless people say they wanted to work with Saw because of You Spin Me Round Like a Record by Dead or Alive. For Donna, it was a different Saw chart topper that caught her attention. I was in Europe and my husband said to me, these guys, you should work with these guys. And I didn't really know who they were at the time. And then um, I guess it was last year, the year before last, I was in uh, Europe again and I heard Rick Astley. And he was, you know, he was great and I really loved his production. And then my record company came to me and said, look, we'd like for you to work with the guys that did Rick Astley. And I said, oh, great. I love him. You know, so we we met up and and, uh, I went to London and we hit it off immediately and it was, it worked out. But this time I Know It's For Real wasn't the first thing that Saw came up with as a potential song for Donna to record. Instead, it was this one. That was Sentimental, which Donna was happy to have on the Another Place and Time album, possibly because she had a co-writing credit on it, but it wasn't what she wanted as a single, was it? Yeah, according to Mike Stock, Donna was apparently unenthusiastic, so he pulled out all stops to keep her engaged. He told Retro Pop magazine, quote, The first song we did was Sentimental, and she wasn't sure of it, but I talked to her and we got it done. Then I thought, I've got to convince her that it's worth her doing the rest of the album with us. I went home that night and started rattling around in my head what would become this time I know it's for real. The next morning I got up and finished it off in the bath and during the car journey into the studio so by 11 o'clock I've got the whole thing. Now when Mike says he wrote this time I know it's for real I don't think he means he came up with a fully formed song to give to Donna. Sure a lot of the pieces would have been in place but let's hear from Matt Aiken about how the track developed with Donna who has a co-writing credit on this song too and played a major part in it coming together. Donna Summer, did that feel special working with her or was it just like any other artist, let's do the job, or or did it feel this is Donna Summer? No, it was Donna Summer. You know, I started dancing to Donna Summer. 
I, I would say we were both a bit uh, trepidatious about uh, about working with her, especially you know when they consider the way it works back then. You know, most other producers would have met the artist three or four times. You know, had lunch, had dinner, gone clubbing, had a few drinks, got pissed together, and broken the ice before you actually start work. That's not the way it works with us. You know, the door opened in March on a summer. And here's something I knocked up over the weekend. Would you like to sing them? Which um, I think was quite wacky for her. But, you know, she just piled in and just sort of blasted us with lyrics. And she just was a very imposing individual, you know, physically. And, and she, she was almost a New Yorker, really. Uh, although she, I don't think she was a New Yorker. But she came across as a, you know, very strident New Yorker. And, and why not when you've had the success that she'd had? Another Place in Time is widely considered Stock Aiken Waterman's best album by Stock Aiken Waterman fans. Did you feel we have to bring our A-game? We, we need to step up to this situation with her or, or just that's the way it played out, that these songs came out and, and were great? I think it was um, just a confluence of... The thing is, if you have a great black voice... And you can get a great black voice that can sing pop well. It's a recipe for success. And Whitney Houston had been sort of, you know, knocking it out of the park for about three years, I think, before the time he got to work with Donna. Uh, and the brief was, let's just write some pop songs, but with a little bit of an R&B feel, which we did, just a little bit of an R&B feel. And Donna just added the rest. And it was just easy, you know, so easy. Why can't everything be like this? Why can't we work with Donna Summer all the time? Yeah, we can work with Donna Summer on Monday. And we can work with Banana on Monday, Tuesday and Melon Kim on, the, on Wednesday and just pick up the, the good bits. How collaborative were the sessions? Because I know she has some co-writing credits. I don't remember Donna coming in with a, with a stash of lyrics. But, the, you know, this time I know it's real, which we had as a track. It was laid down with the chords and everything, but we didn't have a title. Uh, we had the idea of a tune the broad outline of a tune but we kind of said well look this is the kind of thing we'd like to do uh, and basically she i mean the title's hers this time it's real that's american no we wouldn't say that do i stand in line we don't say stand in line we say q correctly so she, i mean she just like uh you know how it's a lyrics at us you know it, it didn't take a long time to put together but i think that I'm not sure whether we attempted to physically sit down or I think Donna had to go back to the States at that point, maybe. But I think by that point, she trusted us. And really, to be honest, we, we, we wrote the rest of the, the album ourselves. Donna said in multiple interviews that she was stunned how quickly This Time I Know It's For Real came together, and so very early on in the process. And to her recollection, that was on the first day. She couldn't believe that what was produced in that one session was, quote, almost exactly as you hear it now. She told Number One magazine, that song kind of popped out to us. They played me four or five basic tracks, and I liked the one that turned out to be This Time I Know It's For Real. And by the end of the day, we'd written it. They write a little differently to me, but I think we're good for each other because I write more descriptively, like vivid pictures, whereas they write more about feelings. They do mean business when they go in, and they kind of work like a machine. They crank it out and don't even stop for lunch. I've never seen anybody work harder than them. She told America's ABC News, Usually you don't hit the nail on the head on the first day. I was so excited by this song. We all were. We just felt like this is it. Just the title, everything. It was just such a positive, affirmative, this is it. 
But Pete Waterman has a different memory, saying that Donna was unsure about the track at first. According to him, she apparently feared she wasn't the right age to be singing giddy, ecstatic love songs. He told Radio Richard that Donna needed to hear a bit of teenage enthusiasm first in order to be fully on board. Quote, she came back the next day and her 17-year-old daughter had heard it and just gone bananas over it. Apparently, there's a demo recording in existence in the PWL vault where Donna can be heard singing along to the backing track and coming up with those lyrics on the spot. I'd love to hear that. In fact, there's quite a few things in the PWL vault I'd love to hear. Of course, Donna could sing the phone book and it would sound amazing. This really was a case of one of the world's top vocalists coming to work with Saw. And Donna shared Matt's view of her being a pop artist. In 1978, she had told Rolling Stone, quote, I've sung gospel and Broadway all my life and you have to have a belting voice for that. They categorise me as a black act, which is not the truth. I'm not even a soul singer. I'm more of a pop singer. One thing the entire Saw team agree on is that Donna blew them away with her vocals. After working with more than a few singers who needed a lot of attention, <clears throat> Donna was a breath of fresh air. Pete Waterman even claimed that it was Donna who brought the whole song into a cohesive state with her vocal input. He told Record Collector, The song hadn't come together and there were pieces of paper all over the floor. Donna really pulled that together with her vocals. It shows what working with a truly great singer can achieve. What she did with that track was incredible. Mike Stock told Mark Elliott in the Ministry of Pop book that she was the finest singer he had ever worked with, saying she was a beautiful, very accurate singer. She was the best one for me. She took it up a notch for us. Mike also wrote in his own book, she hit each note perfectly and hearing her perform my songs was a flattering and rewarding experience. Because she was a brilliant singer, she embellished and brought to life the tune in a way that didn't need any further help from me. Donna liked to have the track thinned out so she could hear her voice very clearly. She always wanted the echo and reverb taken off because she was a precise singer and liked a dry sound. With less capable singers, I would sometimes feed them the echo in the headphones to make it sound bigger and give them confidence. In Donna's case, she just wanted to concentrate on the notes. I would sing the lyrics to her and she would sing them back with brass knobs on, unquote. Gavin, how do you go from working with certain vocalists who I won't name to Donna Summer? It must have been the shock of the century. It must have just been so easy. I guess after difficult vocal sessions to have someone like that come in and just nail it, Saw worked quickly. But with someone like Donna, I feel like it must have just been like, yep, done, perfect, we don't need to do anything. And to hear your songs performed by someone who can really sing, it just must make such a difference. Because I can imagine recording with some of the people Stock Aiken and Waterman recorded with, they'd hear the song back and go, yeah, okay, it does the job. But wow, not since Princess, I would say, had Saw worked on an album with a female singer with that much strength. I mean, Laura Branigan as well, but they only did the two tracks with her. Donna takes the song to another level with those powerhouse vocals. And it wasn't just the producers who were thrilled to be working with a singer of Donna's caliber. Here's Dee Lewis, who sang backing vocals on the album, to talk about performing on a record by one of her musical heroes. Let's talk Donna Summer. Mm -hmm. oh. Did you meet Donna Summer? Did we meet Donna Summer? We did, but it was very um, high, you know, hello, oh my God, I love you. <laughs> I think you're amazing. Yeah. And I think she was probably over just to do her thing and then and then off. But that was that was a, a gem of an experience. That was one of my gem experiences because I was a huge fan of hers anyway. 
and to be able to get to sing, hear her vocals soloed, sing along with them, blend with them, harmonize with them, and end up being on a recording with her forevermore was great. Really great. I loved it. You'd started doing your solo stuff by then. Mm -hmm. Were you brought back to PWL to do that? Yeah, I would have been. Yeah. And that's one of those things. It's like I wasn't around as much then because I was doing my solo stuff. So instead of being there and singing on almost everything, I'd come in to do select things of which Donna Summer was definitely one of them. Still a great album. Still listen to that. Was there that attitude around this project that this is Donna Summer and we've got to put everything into it? I think so. Yeah. I think it's like anything, you know, you, you all up your game when the game needs to be upped and, um, and not, not just up in your game, but also, you know, being inspired, like just naturally up because you can't help yourself. You know, if, if someone does an amazing guitar solo, it's going to inspire you to come up with some other idea. You know, it's just that that's kind of that flow of creativity, you know, the way it works. And, and I know that Pete was very, very connected to making this, you know, a success and very blown away by the idea of working with with Donna Summer, as we all were. Yeah. So I, I, I'd imagined, yeah, everyone was like, right. Okay, guys, <laughs> game on, let's do this. And, and it was great. Yeah. And she sounds like Donna Summer and they sound, and the track sounds like PWR, which is sometimes that's hard to kind of marry two different sounds and make them work so well together, but she's one of those legend singers. So, yeah. Now all finished and ready for the world, this time I know it's for real was let loose, with another Saw and Donna composition on the B-side. Unusually, she'd supplied all of the lyrics to Saw and the song was constructed from that point. I have only one complaint about this B-side. It's too damned good. Whatever Your Heart Desires is my second favourite track on the album and it was very much wasted here. Let's hear that brilliant track. Whatever Your Heart Desires really is one of Saw's best B-sides. It could even have been a single, but then that's true of most songs on the album. This Time I Know It's For Real was an immediate success right across Europe, reaching three in the UK, Finland and Norway, two in Belgium, four in Ireland, six in Denmark, France and the Netherlands, and 15 in Germany. There are few songs in Saw's catalogue that are as universally loved as This Time I Know It's For Real. The track was the perfect marriage of pop and dance. And Whitney Houston is a good reference point. It is kind of up there with things like How Will I Know and I Want to Dance With Somebody in being a joyous pop song, but, you know, something you can dance to as well. It sounded great on the radio for those stations that would play it. And in the clubs, it really is top tier Saw. This is Saw at their absolute peak. It's one of the best records they ever made and one of the best records of the late 80s full stop. Everything about this record evokes elation, the soaring chorus, the lyrics, the ecstatic music, and that performance from Donna, it's pure joy. Let's have a listen to a couple of the great moments from the 12-inch single.
fantastic. I have to say that's not my favourite Stockake and Waterman extended version. I think it's fine. But for me, you can't go past the seven-inch version of this track. It is just perfect from beginning to end. That said, I did find myself dancing to the extended version of this Tomano It's For Real in 1998, almost a decade after it was released in a club in Paris. It was part of like six Stockake and Waterman tracks back to back in this club. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've died and gone to heaven. I mean, it will get me on the dance floor. What about you, Matt? Definitely, definitely. It's just, if you want a mood lifter, there's nothing better than this song. This is where Saw needed to be, making records this good with artists this good. And Saw's dance floor credentials were just what Donna needed after years in the wilderness making records for David Geffen. It's no accident at all that she found her way back with Saw, who were inheritors of Giorgio Moroder's magic. Donna herself recognised this, admitting she wanted to get back to her dance floor fan base. She told ABC News, They have managed to make me sound more like myself than perhaps I have in the past. She also told The Advocate, It's a very 80s sounding record, but it's the closest thing to my big hits with Giorgio. Stockache and Waterman probably sound closer to Giorgio in general than anyone else since I was with him. Joy all around, eh, Gavin? The music video was pretty joyous too, as Donna made her train journey across the world. The hand claps, those dancers doing that running man move I always wanted to be able to do, and Donna, in the middle of it all, looking like she was having the time of her life. In terms of the song's US success, well, true to form, things were complicated with Geffen Records. In a foreshadowing of what was to come when Saw worked with American-based girl group Boy Crazy, the label, or in this case, David Geffen, wanted more guitars on the track. Matt, how did that go down with PWL? Like a lead balloon, Gavin. <laughs> Geffen, who, as you recall, had been key in getting rid of Maroda, was apparently deeply unhappy when he heard Donna's new material. According to Pete Waterman, he demanded it be made rockier for the US market, which PWL quite sensibly refused to do. A stalemate ensued, ultimately resulting in Geffen refusing to release the record. But the American public did want this music. Soon enough, the album was selling like hotcakes on import across the country. Donna said, I felt betrayed about the whole situation, especially since I wanted to leave Geffen several years ago and they made me wait out my contract. David said he didn't like the album. He said he wasn't going to put it out and I could sue him if I wanted to. I thought, great, then I'll go. Happily for both sides, her contract with Geffen was soon terminated. Not surprisingly, there was a scramble for US rights for Donna's new stuff. She told Dance Music Report, quote, Everybody was bidding on it. I had a call from every single major label in the United States. Basically, it was a problem of logistics. We'd gotten reports of I don't know how many thousands of import copies being leaked into this country, and we were losing not only money but other opportunities as well. And so we had to go with whatever label could release the album fastest. That was Atlantic. PWL's instincts about those guitars were right, and the song in its original form became an American hit, climbing to number seven on the Billboard Hot 100 in late June. You'd think a transatlantic top ten hit would have thrilled Stock Aiken Waterman. Matt Aitken suggests otherwise. This time I know it's for real was a massive hit in the US. Was it always a thrill when you got an American hit? What number of, what was it in the States, Gavin? Was it seven? It was seven, wasn't it? Yeah, that's disappointing uh, for that record. And that's the number one record. And it should have been number one here, frankly, there. I said it 
Yeah, no, it hurts. That hurts, number seven. It's better than 41. Yeah, but it's six places off, mate. Because <laughs> there are a few number 41s. I know, I know Mike has a thing about number 41. Don't talk to me about 41. That was the <laughs> death curse. Well, you know why 41 is no good? Top of the pops. Yeah, well, uh, Radio 1. You were 41, you didn't get Radio 1 play. Right. Mike Stock was also unhappy with the chart position. He wrote in his book, This Time I Know It's For Real got to number seven on America's Billboard. But if she'd been a young teenager when she sang that song in 1989, it would have been number one for six weeks, unquote. It's hard not to wonder what the delay in US release and the flood of import copies might have done to the success of this record. But Mike Stock is right that it deserved the top spot. Yeah, obviously we can't forget that the US charts are based half on airplay as well, and songs would get to number one on really strong airplay and not as strong sales. So yeah, the sales of those imports might have had an effect. Anyway, number seven's pretty good. Stop complaining, guys. Now, that US success may have helped the track in Australia as well. This time I know it's for real had debuted on the ARIA Top 100 in early May 1989 off the back of its UK chart run. But it didn't reach the top 50 here until late August, by which point it was also big in the US. Sadly, Donna's version was never a massive chart hit in Australia, it got to number 40, but the song would be recognised locally 17 years later when a girl group made up of ex-Australian Idol finalists called Young Divas took a cover all the way to number two. I wonder what Saw think of that. With everyone thrilled with This Time I Know It's For Real, it had been a no-brainer to proceed with the album. And that meant both Donna and Saw having to come to terms with their different creative processes, a situation that Waterman described as culture shock for both sides. Donna had a lot to say about where she fit in when it came to writing. They have a vision, and their vision cannot be completed if it's dissipated by a lot of other people's ideas. And so I think whenever a person has a vision, they have to see to it that the people they employ see their vision too. And um, I, I, so in that sense, I don't think it's dictatorial. I think it's just a portion of their vision, and they don't allow anyone to detract from their vision. I think they're right. It was a collaboration. I think they have a good sense of who I am. They have a good sense of the market, and they know what my uh, career has been. Uh, they know the type of records I've sold and what type of market that is. They are very well uh, advised in the, you know, the popular market, you know, as far as the, the charts are concerned. And so I, I feel very secure with them. I didn't feel like they didn't know what they were doing at any time. You know, it's like a factory over there. They work. They are not playing. They mean business, those guys. And so I have to take my hat off to them. They're very, very creative and very on the case. Again, Another Place and Time stands triumphant as some of Saw's best work, and we'll be going through it track by track, counting down listeners' favourite songs in the bonus material. This was an album I bought at the time and listened to constantly, from that burst of pure energy that is the I Don't Want to Get Hurt opening, to the final fade out of Love's About to Change My Heart, both of which we'll talk about in more detail when we get to those single releases. Yeah, it's beyond dispute that this was one of Saw's best ever albums. There's a mature there and a reverence for Donna's back catalogue with Maroda, but there's still a lot of 89 pop smarts. There are many great tracks and such a great variety of material, and we'll see a bunch of those tracks lifted as singles over the coming episodes. Backing up what we've heard so far that this album was a true collaboration is Pete Hammond, who mixed the album. 
on more than one occasion, as he tells us. I did that album twice, mixed it twice. Pete Waterman said you'd, you'd had a meeting with Donna and um, her manager husband, wasn't it, A manager, I believe, and they weren't happy with it. And I, I said, well, look, Pete, I've done everything I can. I, don't, I can't. I don't know what else to do to it. I said, I've got it sounding as good as I can get it sounding. And well, you've got to do it again anyway, he said. And I, I nagged him, I said, you've got to tell me what I'm going to do, because otherwise I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Anyway, then he produced this piece of paper from his pocket, and it was a letter from Donna, and it was lots of notes about each track and what they wanted changed on each track. And it was nearly always more ad-libs, because we didn't use that many ad-libs. Anyway, it's all very well, but every ad-lib goes, oh, baby. Every ad-lib is ooh baby. And after a while, you can't keep having ooh baby everywhere in the track. You know, so anyway, I kind of read between the lines, made a few changes what they'd asked for and, and put in a few more ooh babies. And, and that was <laughs> that was it, really. If you listen to it, you'll see it's ooh baby every time. That's that's not an ad-lib. That's a, you'll, you'll hear it now, I've told you. I will. I won't be able to unhear it. <laughs> yeah, he, he was very reluctant to show me that. I've got to tell you that. He didn't want to show me. He just wanted me to go in and do it. But how could I... It was only me badgering him for, for why that he actually showed me the letter at all. Oh, and I went in with my notes and got on with it. But I guess most other artists wouldn't have had the sway for that to be taken on board. No, no, no. They either said, no, that's it. Oh, yes, he would have definitely stood his ground. But because she was who she was, he caved in. Ooh, baby. <laughs> that's fascinating. I, for one, love all the ooh babies and all those ad-libs. And also that insight into the power play with Waterman caving into Donna because of, you know, the, the superior power dynamics of her superstardom. Or maybe he just backed down out of sheer respect. And let's face it, she did deserve that. I think it's fair to say Donna was an artist who got exactly what she wanted, and with good reason. That extended to the album cover, which caused a bit of controversy with her American label. PWL MD and artistic mastermind David Howells worked very closely with Donna on the cover. Here's what he recalls about that distinctive cover shot and the reaction it received from the US execs. Was there a conscious thing of, oh, we have to do a good job because it's Donna Summer? Not that they did a bad job in other times, but do you know what I mean? Like, let's rise to this occasion. I think they were incapable of doing a bad job. Donna Summer... For me, it's my favourite album, the whole eight years, whatever it was we did together. That was just sensational. The hardest thing to do is to break an unknown act. But what Pete uh, did at uh, PWL was to take a bunch of completely new artists and give them the chance to become that person. But with Donna, he was a top list, uh, number one artist walking into the studio, obviously with her own concept of who Donna Summer is, the guys were fans. Everybody was a fan of Donna Summer. So they, everybody's got their view of who Donna Summer is. So when that impacts itself, obviously there's a lot of exciting things come out of that. And Donna had very strong views of who she was, where she came from, and where she wanted to go. Super creative, just a delight. I, I did the uh, design of the album jacket for that album with Donna. The best bit of graphics, I, in my opinion, I was ever involved in because we had an artist who was totally involved and committed and looking to do different things and open to ideas and going, well, what if we did this? Could we go down there? I'll go, yeah, that's fine. Just very exciting person to be around. But that's someone who's been out there, done it all, seen it all, and is still curious and is still looking to set new quality. And it's such a striking front cover, that album. Yeah. You know, you see it from a distance, you know, that's the Donner album. Here's the funny thing about this. This is really, 
sometimes our American cousins are very strange in the way they approach things. So this album was made for America, for David Geffen, as you know. Then David Geffen had rejected it, saying there's no hits on this record. And then there was the controversy that Donna went through, and she said, well, I never said that, so I won't apologize. And then it went to Atlantic, and we had a good relationship with Atlantic. And I got the call going, yeah, but this cover, we can't do that. This is a black woman, and you've made her a white woman. And I said, no, we haven't. It's, it's no theater. It's Japanese. And they said, well, they never know who she is. I said, tell me the one thing about Donna Summer that is unforgettable. It's her eyes. When you see that cover, the first thing you see are those amazing eyes. It could only be Donna Summer. Then the rest of it registers and you go, wow. Uh, you know, the coat was hers. The hat was something that was in the studio. This was very much uh, Lawrence Laurie did the photograph, did the session that we'd engaged him to do that. It was a, a very creative session. There were all sorts of ideas floating around, but the Americans couldn't handle it. Now, as it happened, we'd also done some other photographs with her in denim and because we wanted some publicity shots as the label wanted. So I flipped it around because on the back of the cover, if you remember, there is a denim. So they simply said, no, we're going to flip it. We can't. It's too controversial. And Donna and I are going, what's controversial? It's Japanese. It's it's a you know several hundred years old tradition of theatre. Well, what do you? But now now people look at it and go classic album. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know Donna couldn't get over it when she got home because all the magazines and interviews were all going. How could you? How would you? Why would you do that? Much as I think the cover is so memorable and eye catching, I can see the point of the US label. Yeah, well, controversy did erupt in the US just as predicted. On YouTube, you can see Arsenio Hall questioning Donna about it when she was promoting the single. It probably became a bit of a distraction at a time when Donna ideally wanted the focus to be entirely on the music. But she was an artist and this album cover was an image that she wanted to portray. Well, I look forward to talking in detail about the album in the bonus material and counting from 10 to 1 of our listeners' rankings of the tracks. And you can listen to that at chartbeats.com.au slash saw, where you can subscribe for all the bonus content for this podcast and a journey through Aussie pop. And can I just say thank you to all our loyal subscribers whose support keeps this podcast going. And I'm not joking about that. We know it's not always easy to shell out for all the different sites and content creators and publications out there and, you know, only fans for those who are so inclined. So we really do appreciate everyone who chooses to support us. And we love giving you something extra in the bonus material each episode. Something tells me this episode's content is going to amount to its own own episodes worth, right? Right. Yeah, we so appreciate all the support and love we've been getting. I want to do a special shout out to Tony H, who wrote us such a beautiful and touching letter. I just loved reading that. This podcast takes a lot of work, but you make it clear it's all worth it. I'd also like to take a minute to thank another of our listeners, Ross, who delved into his personal CD collection to help us out with Donna. If you'd like to say hi, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at ChartBeatsAU or by searching for ChartBeats on Facebook. You can reach me directly on Twitter at Mr. Matt Denby, and you can also find me on Post by searching for my name. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our triple shot, three episodes in three weeks of three massive hits from early 1989. More big hits from 1989 to come in a couple of weeks, and we'll be joined for the first time by this guy. Hello, I'm Pat Sharp, and I'm telling Chartbeats about my amazing journey with Stock Aitken Waterman. Oh yeah, and by the way, I haven't stopped dancing yet. 
Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.